Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 48, verses 30 through 35. Ezekiel 48, 30 through 35. And it reads, These are the exits of the city. On the north side, 4,500 cubits by measurement shall be the gates of the city, named for the tribes of Israel. Three gates toward the north, the gate of Reuben, one, the gate of Judah, one, the gate of Levi, one. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, shall be three gates, the gate of Joseph, one, the gate of Benjamin, one, and the gate of Dan, one. On the south side, 4,500 cubits by measurement shall be three gates, the gates of Simeon, one, the gate of Issachar, one, the gate of Zebulun, one. On the west side, 4,500 cubits shall be three gates, the gate of Gad, one, the gate of Asher, one, the gate of Naphtali, one. The city shall be 18,000 cubits round about, and the, name of, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. Well, if by this point in the summer you don't believe names are important, I would encourage you to talk to my wife. And here's why. Because she has a unique story to tell, and I did receive permission to tell it ahead of time. You see, back when we lived in Pensacola, before she became an educator, she worked in a doctor's office. Uh, She was part of that, did some of the administrative duties, and one of her tasks was to contact patients uh, when they uh, needed to schedule appointments, when they uh, needed uh, information updated, things like that. And so on one occasion, she had the responsibility of calling a patient who had a very unique name. Now, his name was not unique because it was hard to pronounce, nor was it unique because it, it was an unheard of name. No, this gentleman's name was unique because it was infamous. And so on that day, she called his house. His name, first name, was Adolf. And she called his house, and his wife answered. And Sarah, completely unintentionally and sporadically said, Yes, may I speak with Adolf Hitler, please? (laughs) And the wife said on the phone, Excuse me? And Sarah did what any self-respecting person would do in that moment. She hung up the phone. (laughs) She then left her little office and went and found the doctor for whom she worked and informed the doctor that she was going to have to fire her. And then explained what happened. And the doctor said, well, you have to call him back and apologize. And so Sarah went back, called the number again. The wife answered the phone. Sarah said... Ma'am, I am so sorry. I called a moment ago and I asked for Adolf Hitler. I know that's not your husband's last name. It was completely an accident. I'm so sorry. And the, the wife of Adolf then said, Honey, it's no big deal. Sometimes he acts like Adolf Hitler. <laughs> but that story reiterates the point that names are important. You don't want to get someone's name wrong. And so for the entirety of this summer, we have been studying the names of God. In addition to his personal name, which is Yahweh, the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush, we've looked at eight other names that use Yahweh 
with another term to give us a new name of God. And we've said this whole summer that it's like God has been an artist with brushstrokes and drops of paint giving us a portrait of who he is by dropping these names from time to time throughout Scripture. And this morning, we want to come to the last name that we're going to consider, not necessarily the last name that appears in Scripture. And the last name we want to consider is Yahweh Shammah. Now, this name only appears one time in the entire Bible. And it appears in the very last chapter of the book of Ezekiel. But to understand this name, we need to understand something about the book of Ezekiel. It's a book we don't reference a whole lot. In fact, my imagination tells me that for most of you, the extent of your knowledge of Ezekiel has to do with a valley of dry bones, because we just don't go there very often. So what I want to do is give you a little overview, a little insight, a little background regarding Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel was written by a priest turned prophet of the same name who was a Jewish captive in Babylon. Now, Ezekiel was not among the first group of captives that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem. That group would have consisted of the likes of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Ezekiel was not a part of that group. He was a part of the second wave of captives who were escorted back to Babylon something like five years after that initial group. So he is a contemporary, you would say, of Daniel, but he was not a part of their initial group. A third and final wave of exiles would be brought to Babylon six or seven years after Ezekiel's arrival, and that coincided with the fall of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, So Ezekiel is a prophet of God in Babylon. And he's there for a few years before Jerusalem falls. And and it's there in this foreign land that God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet. On the banks of the the Shabar River, he has his first vision. And the thing is, Ezekiel is not given an easy prophetic assignment. He's not sent to the people of Babylon. He's sent to the exiles in Babylon. He's sent to the Jewish people who are in a forced relocation from their homeland. And he's sent with a message that none of them want to hear. Because the message that Ezekiel is supposed to bring to them is, you're not going home anytime soon. His message is one of, hey, Jerusalem's going to fall and you're going to be stuck here for a while. And the way that gets communicated to the Israelites is through these visions he has. And we don't have any time to do an exhaustive study of all his visions, but, but one thing you need to know about Ezekiel's visions is that the glory of the Lord figures prominently in them. And that phrase, the glory of the Lord or the glory of God, you'll see it throughout the book of Ezekiel. And it's really a a way of figuratively speaking about the presence of God. The glory of God represented his presence among his people. And what's interesting in this vision that Ezekiel is going to have, or in one of the visions he's going to have, he's going to watch the glory of the Lord move multiple times. The movements start. In chapter 9 of Ezekiel. 
And what Ezekiel observes in chapter 9 is the glory of God resting, resting above the cherub. That's the first place he observes it in this particular vision. Now, what does that mean for this glory of God to be resting above the cherub? Well, the cherub is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant in this context because atop the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat had these two cherubs crafted onto it, one on each end of that seat. And we are told when we read Exodus chapter 25, the instructions given regarding the construction of this Ark of the Covenant and mercy seat, we also find out that the mercy seat represented the very presence of God. Because if you look at verse 22 of Exodus 25, it says, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandments for the people of Israel. This is why the Ark of the Covenant came to be associated with the very presence of God. Wherever the Ark was, In the eyes of the people, that's where God was. And so the temple became this sacred and holy place because God's presence was there through the Ark of the Covenant. And Jerusalem came, became this special and holy city because there is the city where the temple was that housed the Ark of the Covenant. And so all of this is made special by the very presence of God, the glory of the Lord, which was associated with that mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so what what Ezekiel first sees is the glory of the Lord above the cherub, above the Ark of the Covenant. But then he sees the glory of the Lord relocate to the threshold of the house. That threshold of the house terminology is a reference to the entryway to the temple proper. The temple was often referred to as the house of the Lord. The threshold is a reference to a door, and it's referring to the main building that comprised the temple, that building that had two rooms to it, the front room being the holy place, the back room being the most holy place. The back room is where the ark sat. But that building was the house of the Lord, and he just saw the glory of the Lord leave uh, from above the Ark of the Covenant and go to the entryway. Or another way to say that is to go toward the exit. And now the Spirit, uh, excuse me, the glory of the Lord is residing not in its normal spot above the Ark of the Covenant, but at the exit to the temple proper. All that's revealed in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 3. And from there, if you get to Exodus, Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 10, In verses 18 and 19, you read this. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. Now that can get confusing because we've already used the word cherub. This time when it speaks of the cherubim, it's referring to these angelic beings that he has observed in his vision. You can go back to verse 3 of this very chapter and you find out that those cherubim are standing on the south side of the house, on the south side of the temple. In the temple courts is what it's referring to. And the glory of the Lord just left the temple proper, exited the door, and went out and is above the cherubim who are outside the temple proper at this point. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of God of Israel was over them. 
The glory of God has exited the temple proper and is above the cherubim now. And now the cherubim leave the south side of the temple inside the courts and go to the gate through which you enter to get into the temple courts. They're on the outside of the temple complex and now they're moving to the exit of the temple complex. And the glory of the Lord is going there too. And so what you have is this movement. The glory of God has left the, holy, the most holy place exited the temple proper, gone into the temple courts, and now the glory of God is at the exit of the temple courts. And from there, from there we read in Exodus chapter 11, verse 23, that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. The glory of the Lord made one more move the temple, which is in the heart of the city of Jerusalem. That's where all of these movements have taken place so far. But now the glory of the Lord has exited the city altogether. Give you a little diagram here. It kind of looks like this. Now this is not a replica of Solomon's temple, which is what we're talking about. This is a replica of Herod's temple in the first century. But just to give you an idea... That star in the back there would represent the interior of the temple where the most holy place is, where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where he first observes the glory of the Lord. But then that moves to the entranceway of the temple proper, the building that housed all those sacred furnishings. And then it moves to the outside of the temple proper, to the temple courts, and then to the temple exit, the gate to the entire complex, and then out of the city altogether. Do you see this movement away from where the, the glory of the Lord has always been. The glory of the Lord is moving away from the place that he's known to reside. And the point of this vision is a prophecy of the desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, but also the distancing of Yahweh from his people due to their rebellious hearts. God is so fed up with their idolatry and their unrighteousness and their wickedness and their sin that he's got to separate himself. And that means he's got to leave the holy temple, his house, and he's got to leave the holy city, Jerusalem, and he's got to create distance between him and these people because they have done so wrong. And this was hard for them to accept. Because they always thought that as long as Jerusalem stood, as long as the temple stood, God's on our side. It doesn't matter where we are in the world. As long as he's there, we're good. But to hear that he's gone, that he's not there anymore, is a blow to their faith to their hope, to their confidence. And that's a message they didn't want to hear. But then in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 21, a fugitive from Jerusalem arrives in Babylon and informs them that Jerusalem had fallen. And with that news, as far as these captives are concerned, all hope was lost. God's not there, and neither are they. 
So the first half of Ezekiel's book, the first half of his visions are not pleasant, are not joyful. They're difficult. They are visions that inform the Israelites in captivity that their God has moved away because they moved away from him. But then Ezekiel has additional visions. Visions that give encouragement and hope. Look at Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by the Kibar Canal. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. What happens is that Ezekiel gets another vision, and it's a vision of God returning, the glory of the Lord returning to Jerusalem, returning to his temple, and filling it again. And he goes on to expound on this for a while, and by the end of the book of Ezekiel, you arrive at this verse. As he prophesies that there will be a new city and a new temple And God will be there, he says, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Yahweh Shammah. Now that's the message of hope. Because Ezekiel is telling the people that yes, Yahweh had to leave because you left him first. But Yahweh is going to return. And Yahweh is going to bring a new city and a new temple. And he's going to be there. What I want us to consider this morning is the impact that the name Yahweh Shema, that the name the Lord is there, should have on us. We're not in captivity like the exiles. We are not separated from Yahweh like they were. So what does this name, or how does this name impact us? Well, first, the name Yahweh Shema, wow, that didn't work out. Yahweh Shema should give us comfort. The name Yahweh Shema should give us comfort. Here's what I mean. Think for a moment how Ezekiel's prophecy was fulfilled. Was it fulfilled when the Jews returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple as recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah? Maybe to some degree, but not every prophetic detail mentioned in Ezekiel chapters 43 through 48 came to fruition in the construction of the temple, in the reconstruction of the temple, I should say. See, the emphasis of Ezekiel's prophecy is not on the temple, but really on the return of God's glory among his people. 
You remember how perfect Ezekiel described the, the, uh, the temple structure? It was a perfect square. Every side was the same length. Every side had the same number of gates. He was describing perfection. And so the real fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy wasn't the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra. No. It was, coming, it was the coming of the Messiah in John. John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's significant about this verse is the word dwelt. Our English can't give justice to the full range of meaning of this Greek word. The Greek word translated dwelt is the term for pitching a tent or erecting a tabernacle. You could legitimately translate this passage and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us or tented among us. Now, what was the precursor to the temple? A giant tent, right? Also known as a tabernacle. And what John is communicating to us is that Christ came. Christ came to this earth as in this tabernacle state. Bringing with him the glory of God. And he was indeed perfect. No sin found in him whatsoever, so that he could become the sacrifice for our sins. And that should give us comfort. That should give us comfort. Because for the first time since the creation of the world, God got to experience what it was like to be us. We will never get to experience what it's like to be him. But he got to experience what it's like to be you. You know, Job one time challenged God with this question. It's in Job chapter 10 and verse 4. He said, do you have eyes of the flesh? Do you see as mortals see? That's kind of a fair question. I can imagine Job with all he went through looking up at God going, you know what? You're up there. You created all this down here. I get that you're omniscient. I get that you're omnipotent. I get that you're omnipresent. But you don't know what it's like to be stuck in this body. You don't know what it's like to experience these things that we go through on this earth. You don't know what it's like to deal with this stuff. You and I can't say that. We will never be able to say that because Jesus came. And because he dwelt among us, he knows what it's like to be us. And that's the argument that the author of Hebrews presents in chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, when he pointed out that we now have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted in every respect as we are. And because he's been subject to every temptation that we have, he knows what it's like to be you and he knows what it's like to be me. And that should give us comfort. God's not ignorant of our situation. He's fully aware of what we're going through. He's fully aware of what it's like to be human. That should give you comfort. You know what else it should give you? The name Yahweh Shema should also 
give you calmness. Calmness. You remember that occasion when the apostles were with Jesus in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and a massive storm rose? It's recorded in Mark chapter 4, verse 37 through 40. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, referring to Jesus. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In Mark's gospel, Jesus criticized the disciples for having no faith. In Matthew's, Jesus criticized them for having little faith. And in Luke's, he criticized them for misplacing their faith, saying, Where is your faith? Why did Jesus question their faith? in this scenario. It's because his presence should have given them a sense of calm. Yeah, he's asleep. But the fact that he was on board with them after they had witnessed all the miracles he had done up to this point, after he'd witnessed them him cure leprosy and heal diseases and cast out demons, they should have been confident that because he was on board, regardless of whether or not he was awake, they were safe. There should have been a calm about them because they were in the presence of Jesus. In fact, seeing Jesus at peace should have brought them a sense of peace. Jesus would later say this in John chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know what that communicates to me? That communicates to me that in the world we're going to face storms. We're going to face hardships. We're going to face difficult circumstances. But if we ride out the storm with Jesus, it will lead to peace. He's the storm calmer. And it doesn't matter what storm you're facing, whether whether it's a medical diagnosis or financial hardship. or or a relationship crisis. It doesn't matter what what difficulty, what storm you're facing. Because he calms the storms. If you only rely on him, because he is there. Yahweh Shema should not only give us comfort, it should give us calmness. And it should also give us courage. That name should give us courage. Has there ever been something you refused to do because you were too afraid? For the longest time, there were roller coasters I would not get on because I was too afraid. I watched that with Micah. She loves to ride some roller coasters, but if she sees a big drop or an inverted loop or a, you know, something like that, she's too afraid to get on it. But you know what? I love to ride roller coasters. Not as much as Ben McGreevy, but I love, he just rode, 15, rode one roller coaster 15 times on Friday. Now, while Ben napped on a bench, apparently. I love to ride roller coasters, but I was afraid of them for the longest time. Has there ever been something you refused to do because you were too afraid? Let me tweak that a little bit. 
Has there ever been something you refused to do for God because you were too afraid? Maybe you refused to confront some injustice because you were too afraid. Maybe you refused to share the gospel with someone because you were too afraid. Maybe you refused to teach a Bible class because you were too afraid. Maybe you refused to become an elder or a deacon because you were too afraid. Maybe you refused to lead a ministry because you were too afraid. Maybe you refused to take a biblical stand on a moral issue because you were too afraid. One preacher said, when you avoid an opportunity to do something for Christ out of fear, you are essentially accusing him of desertion. Do you know why? Look at Matthew chapter 28. The last thing Jesus says to his disciples in the gospel of Matthew. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In his last interaction with those who would carry on his mission, in his last interaction with those who would usher in his kingdom, he reminded them of his authority. He instructed them to go into all the world. He instructed them to teach and make disciples. He instructed them to do all these things related to ministry. And after giving all those instructions, he concluded his final interaction by reminding them that he is Yahweh Shema. I am with you always. I am always there. So in the context of these ministerial assignments, Jesus tells his disciples they don't need to be afraid because he's with them. And I don't think he was just talking to them then. I think he was talking to us now. We don't need to be afraid of any ministerial assignment we find because the Lord is there. It can be a daunting thing to go teach the second grade class back there. I mean, I know the kids that are in there. It can be a daunting task. But the Lord is in that room, isn't he? It can be a daunting thing to sit down with a family member or a friend or a neighbor and try to communicate God's will for them. Oftentimes we avoid it because we don't think we know enough or we won't be able to answer the questions. But the Lord is there, is he not? Now, I'm not trying to proclaim that he's going to give you some divine inspiration, some divine knowledge that you don't already have. But he's going to be there to support you. That's what he claims, isn't it? Do you believe in Yahweh Shema? Do you believe that the Lord is with you no matter what task you undertake for him? Do you believe that he can bring it to fruition? Do you believe that God gives the increase and all you've got to do is water and plant? Because if you do, you believe in Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. And that should give us courage. And finally, it should also give us confidence. The thing that stands out to me the most about Ezekiel's prophecy is it parallels the book of Revelation. 
In the last several chapters of Ezekiel, he tells of his vision of a new city and a new temple. And now I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 21 and look at what John's vision includes, particularly in the first three verses. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And if you skip down, I think, to about verse 22 or so, we're told that there's not going to be a temple in this new city because God himself is the temple. So just like Ezekiel's vision, John's ends with God dwelling with his people. And why does this matter? It's because when you know the end of the story, it changes how you live between the chapters. I don't know if you, you might be like me, but if, if there's a, a sports game on that you really want to see, you don't want anybody to interrupt you. You don't want to know the end of this. You want to watch it play out. You want to enjoy the highs and lows. But if by chance you accidentally discover who wins, doesn't it change how you watch it? If you've pre-recorded it and somebody let it slip, who wins? It changes how you watch the game. Because then when things look bad, you don't stress out. You know your team's going to pull through. That's why God gave us his word, isn't it? To give us the end of the story. We know who wins in the end. We know what happens in the end. We know where the, the, the righteous will go in the end. And so that should give us confidence. Knowing that heaven will be where we are with God should motivate us to not be conformed to this world. Knowing that heaven is where we will be with God should motivate us to persist through trials, knowing that heaven will be where we are with God should motivate us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's not forget what Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the beauty of salvation. That we get to be where he is. That's the beauty of Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there and he invites us to be there with him. And he can do that because he sent his son here for us. Do you remember that name that Jesus was given in Matthew chapter 1? Emmanuel? Do you remember what that means? It's recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It means God with us. God came to be with us so that one day we could be with him. God came here so that we could be there. And this morning, we're reminded of Yahweh Shema, 
the Lord who is there. Because the Lord who is there wants us to be there too. And this morning, we offer his invitation that if you have not put on Christ in baptism, you may do so so that you can be there one day. This morning, we're here so that if you have any need that's preventing you from assuring you'll be there, we invite you to come and make that right. Well, together.